Joining a handful of other states across the country, Michigan is now the latest to mandate 100% of its energy to come from renewable sources by the year 2040, given that renewable energy only accounts for about 12% of Michigan's electricity generation at present. This does amount to one of the most ambitious and aggressive pushes in the nation. Today, we're going to speak with Alex Stevens at the Institute for Energy Research about this, looking at the new law as well as some of the bigger picture implications when we think about other states moving down this path. So Alex, let's discuss your recent piece that you did on this, and we'll have a link out to it where this interview is located on Financial Sense. But you point out that this new law, which was just passed, it is more extreme than what we see even in California. What are some of the implications that you think are going to come from this? Well, I think the two main things are going to be the price of electricity is going to go up and there's going to be concerns about electricity reliability that develop. If I could just talk a little bit about what the law does, and then I actually do think California is a good comparison because they're a little bit further down the road towards adopting these policies and we're starting to see the effect there already. So in Michigan, they pass a law that requires the state to generate about 80% of their electricity from mostly wind and solar, but they do include nuclear, geothermal, and hydropower as renewable sources. And they require 80% 80 generation by 2035 and 100% by 2040. If you compare that to California, uh, California's target is about five years further out. So their 100% clean energy mandate is 2045. The difference being, though, that in Michigan, only about 12% of the state's power mix is renewable energy. So wind and solar is about 12%. And most of that is actually just wind power. Uh, Michigan is not a particularly good state for solar energy. Most people know from November until about March, you just don't see the sun. Uh, So most of the renewable energy in Michigan is actually wind. And so what we're talking about doing here is actually a uh, more rapid conversion of the electrical grid in Michigan Uh, from a lower penetration of renewables to a higher penetration compared to to California in a shorter amount of time. So uh, it's it's a much more uh, radical approach and a much more ambitious approach. Um, And I think, you know, we're everywhere that we've seen renewable energy deployed at this sort of scale, including California, uh, we've seen much higher energy prices, uh, electricity prices. And just as a comparison, you know, California's average retail electricity price in 2022 was about 22 cents per kilowatt hour. And the the national average is about 12 cents. And uh, right now, Michigan's average is right around uh, 12 or 13 cents. But again, where where we've seen renewable energy deployed at this sort of scale, we see much higher prices. And in in the case of California, it's about double. So as you pointed out, Michigan currently has a, a fairly small percentage of their electricity generation coming from renewable sources. The EIA saying that it was 12% as of 2022. So in order to reach that target, this is going to be a very aggressive and ambitious push. It is going to include not just wind and solar, but like you said, hydropower, biomass, hydrogen, and they also note existing nuclear plants as part of this process of going carbon-free. But it doesn't sound like there's an effort to build new nuclear plants. It's just extending the life of the existing plants. That's true. One of the nuclear plants has actually been shut down in the state of Michigan this year, and there's sort of a fight going on whether or not they can keep it open. 
But uh, I believe the, the way that this law was designed was to sort of nod towards nuclear and some of these other resources, but they aren't doing much to clear what are mostly just regulatory issues that end up driving the cost and the time to build new nuclear plants. Uh, so if, if they were serious about this being a mostly nuclear program, uh, they would be making significant reforms uh, on the regulatory side to allow new things to be built, which uh, doesn't appear to be the case. One of the issues that you raised at the very beginning of this, of course, is that electricity prices are likely going to be going up and the grid will be less stable. Those are the two main pushbacks against this aggressive push, especially if it is not accompanied by baseload sources of power, nuclear being front and center as being a, a baseload source that can operate 24-7. So those are the two main pushbacks. And as you said, geography also plays a role here as well. And it's interesting because it doesn't seem like geography is really front and center, where they're accounting for just the amount of wind and sun in trying to achieve these targets. Yeah, that's in general, I would say the past decade or so of the adoption of renewable energy has been marked with overly optimistic assumptions about what renewable energy can deliver in terms of the capacity factor of these power plants. So not just its sort of nameplate capacity, which is how much it can produce, but when you look at, well, what the weather is actually doing and sort of factor the downtime and what, what it's actually producing. And the estimates that have been given for renewable, this for new renewable energy in Michigan uh, tend to follow that pattern of just sort of over-optimism. And, uh, you know, you, you pointed out the main problem uh, with cost assumptions with renewable energy, and it's the intermittency problem. And if I could just spell that out in a little bit more detail. So the basic cost problem with these renewable technologies, it's often cited that they are cheaper, but a lot of times what's going on there is that they're taking rare use cases in which solar or wind production might be sold into like a spot market, and they're taking snapshots of points in the market and then falsely generalizing and saying that they're always and everywhere cheaper. And then a lot of times what you'll see is a levelized cost comparison that sometimes has these uh, technologies as cheaper than uh, combined cycle natural gas and coal and other resources. And there, what they're not factoring is in is the overall cost of the system. So when you're developing an electric grid, you obviously have to produce uh, electricity 24-7, and it needs to be consumed at the, the moment it's produced. So when you have intermittency, what ends up happening is you end up having to double build the grid. So you build the renewable generation and then also backup generation to provide for when those things fall off. And that usually comes in the form of natural gas plants. So what's actually important is the overall system costs. And in order to maintain reliability with renewables, you end up basically having to double build the grid. And one important point that I think is often overlooked is that even from an environmental perspective, when you're thinking about environmental costs, um, a lot of times the people who are trying to come up with environmental cost estimates aren't factoring in the total system costs here. So uh, again, you're, you're paying for sort of two systems, and that's what ends up driving up costs for uh, consumers. And then also, you know, it, it's important to take it into account the whole picture, uh, even when trying to factor things in from an environmental perspective. 
And you also talk about the land footprint. This is another major issue that keeps coming up again and again, because I mean, if you just think about energy density, right, the amount of energy that you can get out of a barrel of oil or even out of nuclear, for example, there's no comparison. Yeah, that's true. It's important to understand that every generating source is going to have some sort of environmental cost. And with renewable energy, um, I, b- I believe the, the state's utility regulator came up with an estimate that like 200,000 additional a- acres of land for wind and solar are going to be needed to uh, to reach, uh, I think, like the 60% mark was the figure that he gave. I actually think those estimates are probably a little bit low. The Brookings Institute had a paper a couple of years ago that tried to figure out the, the land use estimates of renewables compared to natural gas and coal. And the figure that they came up with is that it's about 10 times the amount of land when you factor in things like transmission and distributed nature of renewable energy and everything. Renewable energy takes about 10 times as much land per unit of power produced. Uh, so so the impact on the environment isn't nothing when it, we talk about green energy. Even beyond that, you know, uh, uh, an energy system that's powered by uh, renewable technologies differs quite a bit from uh, one that has that's powered by sort of traditional uh, hydrocarbon resources because they require pretty substantial amount of mineral materials. So the IEA has some numbers on what exactly that means. So for an onshore wind plant, they require about nine times as many mineral resources than a gas fire power plant does. And they're obviously producing much less electricity. So when you take into account the whole picture of renewable energy, the environmental cost of of this stuff isn't zero. And uh, the the land use issues are obviously a big point of contention with this policy uh, there in Michigan. I know a lot of the sort of suburban and rural areas are pretty upset about the idea of their landscapes being turned into basically solar and wind farms. Obviously, land use issues should be decided, ideally, private level where, you know, each person is doing it. But if the state is is, is mandating sort of things to be built on your land and stuff, it, it's obviously going to cause political conflict. And uh, it's been a big issue here in Michigan. Yeah. And you made a point about how there's been a lot of uh, attempts or figures showing that renewable energy is either competitive with or cheaper than fossil fuels. But a lot of that data goes back during the period in which the borrowing costs were extremely cheap for financing a lot of these things. Uh, We also saw, which we're in a transition period with this currently, but we also saw a lot of the input costs falling for the production of wind and solar because much of those components, the things that go into them are manufactured in China. And China has been able to do that at an extremely cheap rate because they use a large amount of coal. If you ignore all that, then it it may be cheaper. That's right. It gets back to sort of the over-optimism that I was talking about earlier. Uh, A lot of the cost estimates uh, or future projections for renewable energy, what they did was they saw uh, the falling input costs over time and just sort of projected that out in the future as if there were never going to be supply chain disruptions, changes to public policy. Uh, changes demand, you know, things that are going to change uh, input prices. And then there was an assumption that a lot of people made that has affected much more than just the energy space, but the assumption that would be in a low interest rate environment for a long time. And as you were noting with California, California is a little bit ahead. This is where I'm located in San Diego. 
And we do see very high electricity prices as well. But you think about what we have seen in California as the cost of business continues to go up and up. People are leaving California. Businesses are leaving California in droves. So, you know, if California is the bellwether for what we should expect as you move aggressively in this direction, Michigan and many of these other states are are likely looking at uh, some of these similar forces as well, I would believe. Yeah, unfortunately, the uh, the comparisons of Michigan and California don't stop when it comes to energy policy. Um, I think for the past two years, Michigan has had a decline in population as well. And that's an ongoing concern for people in the state. But, you know, one thing that's sort of important that often gets lost in Michigan's economy in particular, and I, I would imagine that this will probably resonate you with you. Uh, to some extent as a as a resident of California. But if you go back and you look at Jennifer Granholm's record as the governor of the state of Michigan, um, most of her economic policies followed an approach to economic development where uh, these programs with subsidies and loan guarantee programs, all these things were sort of the mainstay of public policy. And uh, what this is often referred to as industrial policy, which is basically just means that there's sort of a strategic effort to encourage the development of certain sectors of the economy. And this is extremely prevalent in the way that people approach energy policy today. And going back and looking at Jennifer Granholm's record as governor, you know, a lot of those programs were basically a failure. Uh, they didn't deliver on the jobs that were promised. They didn't create the type of innovation that was promised. And the actual legacy of those programs to Michigan's economy today is that it's essentially defined by what economists call rent-seeking behavior, where businesses focus more on obtaining government favors and benefits and less on meeting actual consumer demand and driving genuine innovation and efficiency, uh, you know, the sort of things that actually drive economic progress. So... I think this is pretty important. Jennifer Granholm is obviously at the DOE right now. A lot of the programs that the Biden administration is pushing are the exact type of failed programs that we saw in the state of Michigan about a decade ago. And uh, unfortunately, it seems there is little reason to believe that we're not going to have the similar results. And, you know, going back to what we've seen in Europe, Europe has aggressively pushed in this direction ahead of the United States, Germany being the you know, the darling of the green energy uh, movement early on, pushing extremely heavy into wind and solar. And now we see Germany, as well as many other European countries, are suffering from extremely high electricity rates. In many cases, like I said earlier, they've had to go back to coal because the intermittency, it's not been feasible. It's not been reliable. It's its just doesn't meet what the consumers need, what businesses need. And so it's causing problems for their economies. They're backtracking. They're moving away from a lot of those aggressive targets that they initially launched. They've warmed up to nuclear power. Germany's probably the last holdout, but uh, many European nations have really started to say we need to have nuclear as part of our carbon-free or carbon-neutral transition plan. So that's I would say that's a good sign, at least for grid reliability, of course. Uh, but the United States is still a little bit behind because we haven't felt, I would say, the, the full brunt of the impact like we've seen in Europe. All right. So uh, Germany is obviously an interesting case study uh, starting in, I think it was 2011, 2010, somewhere right in that area. Like you said, they uh, 
decided to close their nuclear and coal plants, and they wanted to move to a system that was basically uh, renewables backed up by natural gas. And under that, you know, prices had been rising for a long time, but then uh, they were heavily dependent on Russia for imports of natural gas. And because of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, that obviously disrupted their imports and they found themselves basically in an energy crisis. And the long run implications of the energy policy decisions they've made in Germany is that today, Germany is the world's worst performing major developed economy. And the IMF and European Union expect its economy to shrink this year. Um, and its GDP is expected to contract by about a half a percent. So the long run implications of higher energy and electricity prices are really profound for the sort of macro uh, economic environment. And Germany is a really good case study of that. And then to your point about uh, us not feeling the effects yet here in the US, um, I think that's right. And unfortunately, I, I, I do think we're going to have to see the effects of these policies uh, affect people a little bit more before we see uh, a more substantial rethink of public policy. But, you know, one of the things that's often said in politics and government is, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. And generally, policymakers sort of abuse that to push through policies that I personally think kind of go in not the best direction. But, uh, you know, the same thing holds true for people who want to see reforms in a in more of a market liberal direction or a free market direction. The crisis that's created by bad government policy, you know, does present us opportunities for reform. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we uh, at IER have sort of spent the past couple of years preparing for this moment where uh, you know, the, the decisions of the past are, are finally coming back to haunt us. And we're ready to make the case that, you know, substantial uh, rethink of energy policy in the U.S. Uh, needs to be done soon uh, before customers get hurt even more. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think the point should be made that regardless of your stance on carbon and just how much of a crisis we're facing climate change wise from carbon emissions, if you look at Germany, as you said, there's such a good test case here because they aggressively pushed in that direction and then now go back to coal, um, yeah. even tearing down wind farms in place of expanding coal fields. You know, And so what we've seen is we've actually seen carbon emissions go up as a result because they weren't making the common sense, you know, solutions and strategies, long, thinking long-term about, you know, we need to invest in the infrastructure that we have and maybe not make such an aggressive push that's going to end up not working out anyways. I think that's the point is there needs to be common sense. Sure, we can include a greater mix of renewable energy. I would argue that nuclear should be part of that as well, but it needs to be done in a sensible manner it needs to be done with the cooperation of industry groups and in such a way where it's not going to cost consumers and your businesses. So where they all flee your state or your country, you know, where you see deindustrialization like we see in Germany currently and flee to elsewhere like China, which, by the way, uh, even though we are trying to transition away from China in terms of our supply chain dependence, they are building out every single capacity available to them, whether it's coal, hydropower, nuclear, I mean, you name it, they're they're going full on for everything because they realize 
that if they want to be the manufacturing powerhouse of the world, if they want to continue to be competitive on the world stage, they have to have cheap, affordable energy for their businesses and their consumers. And it just seems like a lot of these other states and nations just don't quite understand that. I think that's right. And you know, to your point about common sense, I think one of the biggest mistakes that policymakers and uh, I, I would say particularly economists have made uh, when it comes to talking about climate policy is oftentimes these policy measures are presented in a way in which it's just assumed that everything that we can do to benefit the climate is going to be good. But there isn't a recognition of trade-offs when it comes to reliability and affordability. Um, but also, you know, there needs to be a change in our cultural attitudes where we come to accept the fact that in order to live healthy, productive lifestyles, modern lifestyles, that that entails some degree of changing our environment. Now, obviously, we want to minimize the impacts that we have on the environment where we can. And we certainly want to minimize uh, the impacts uh, in terms of, uh, you know, pollution and things that actually harm people's health. But I think it's often just taken for granted that everything that we can do that leaves the environment untouched is going to be a net benefit. But the reality is, is that, you know, life is full of trade-offs. And uh, a lot of times we, we, we do have to accept that, um, you know, living in a modern world does entail uh, you know, making productive use of our, our natural resources and uh, and uh, policies that are going to restrict that, we do have to think of in terms of some sort of cost benefit analysis, and um, and there, there there just has to be a little bit more thought put into doing that sensibly. Let's talk about electric vehicles here for a moment as we sort of wrap things up, because of course the green energy transition does include the transition away from gasoline, internal combustion engines, and to electric vehicles. Again, I would say that this is emblematic. What we see with uh, EVs currently is emblematic of the wider problems that are faced in moving aggressively towards renewable energy at large. Consumer Reports just came out with a study that says EVs have 79% more reliability problems than gas cars. They're significantly more expensive. And we even see major auto manufacturers, Ford, Toyota, announcing that uh, they're going to be backing away from you know, some of their aggressive pushes to become a you know an EV-wide fleet or or move completely into EVs for some of the reasons that we're discussing. Uh, what is your thoughts in terms of some of the recent news that we've seen in this space? So I think you know there's no doubt that the EV market has grown substantially in the past few years, but it is important to note that you know in 2022 EVs still only made up about 1% of registered vehicles in the US and the past few months Specifically, you know, unsold inventories of EVs have surged quite a bit, and they're just not selling as fast as they're being produced, even with all the government incentives. And I think at the federal level, that still entails a $7,500 tax credit. And then state by state, you have sort of different tax credits that are offered. And then I think even at the local level, you have some cities, uh, uh, specifically, I think in California, there's a lot of cities that offer tax credits as well. So you have all of these policies that are trying to incentivize people to adopt these things. And, uh, you know, for the early adopters, you know, it seems like there's a lot of enthusiasm, but it, it might be the case that the auto companies have sort of tapped most of that market already. 
And what you're seeing is, you know, GM scrapped their production target for next year. I think Ford extended the timeline in which they want to produce. Uh, I think it was 600,000 EVs a year. And, you know, the, the main things that are driving this are, you know, the, the high upfront costs remain a problem. Lack of infrastructure remains a problem, even with all the subs subsidies that are going to building up the charging network. Uh, you touched on the reliability issues. So the whole thing kind of looks to me like a government program that's pretty out of step with what consumers actually want, which is still affordable vehicles that are vers versatile enough to be used for, you know, day-to-day -day commuting, but also for longer trips. And, you know, if you're uh, buying a pickup truck uh, with a range that can sort of tow things and do all this stuff as well, it, it does seem like uh, policymakers' plans for, you know, widespread EV adoption are a little bit out of step with what consumers are actually demanding. And, you know, I think one thing that's not well understood uh, with all these policies that are driving EVs is that uh, it's likely the case that uh, they're driving up the costs of uh, gas-powered vehicles and hybrid vehicles as well. A lot of the news outlets have been covering, you know, how much money these auto companies are losing on each EV produ they produce. And uh, I think Ford was something like $60,000 for every EV itself. Well, that money needs to be made up somewhere else. And uh, generally, you're going to see that in higher prices from, from other vehicles. So a lot has been made about how uh, the automobile market just in general has become much less affordable. And, uh, you know, the, the, these costs are spilling over into the cars that people who aren't interested in EVs uh, it, the costs are spilling over into those vehicles as well. So I think that's something that consumers need to be aware of that as these auto companies are pushing this stuff, uh, the costs are being passed on to uh, people who aren't interested in it. And then, um, you know, one thing I would touch on too is just uh, yesterday, a, a huge list of car dealers came out with a letter saying that uh, the, the administration's policies that are basically going to mandate EV adoption um, they came out pushing back and saying that they're moving too fast. And I think, you know, the, the, the dealers are the part of the auto companies that are obviously most closely in tune with what customers want. So if they're concerned about this and are willing to stand up and sort of say, no, the government is moving too soon, too fast in a direction, I really think that we should listen to them because they have the ear of the, the consumer and uh, are probably in the best position to know what they want. Well, again, as we discuss, you know, these aggressive renewable energy targets by Michigan, California, a handful of other states, they have a number of costs. Like you said, there's trade-offs for attempting to do this. If we do see what we've seen in Europe, which they have the lead on attempting this transition, it is likely looking like we've seen already that this will translate to higher electricity costs. It could end up leading to actually a backpedaling and moving back to fossil fuels because of just the reliability of this energy, its energy densities, all of the practical reasons for why we've used it for you know hundreds of years. And when we look at EVs, we also see a number of problems coming about. Some would argue, you know, play devil's advocate here. Some would say, well, EVs are somewhat new. And so some of these problems that we're seeing, whether or not it's the consumer reports, discussing about the high rates of um, lack of reliability compared to internal combustion engines. Well, those things will be worked out, but we also have a number of the issues related to where these resources are coming from, 
whether or not uh, mining policies are going to be lax enough in order to get these things cheaply because rare earth elements and metals, graphite, all of this stuff is produced in uh, areas where we see nationalization of deposits, where it's even hard to open up mines. So there's a number of issues that are all kind of coming to the fore as we push ahead. And a lot of this, I think we're going to see settle out in such a way where it's just inevitable that we're we're not going to be able to push as aggressive as uh, Governor Whitmer, Gavin Newsom, and the other places are attempting to do. So we'll have to see how this plays out. And of course, we look forward to having you on, on our show in the future to give us an update. And as we close, Alex, if you wouldn't mind, tell our listeners how they can follow more of your excellent research. Yeah, you can uh, follow our website, which is instituteforenergyresearch.org. Most of my writing goes up there. Uh, I also host a podcast called the Plugged In Podcast. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, My handle is Alex underscore Stevens. Perfect. And once again, the website is instituteforenergyresearch.org. Alex, it was a pleasure to speak with you. Look forward to having you on the show again. If you have any questions or feedback on what we discussed today, or if you'd like to get in touch with us at Financial Sense Wealth Management, feel free to check out our new website, financialsensewealth.com, or you can give us a call at 888-486-3939. For FS Insider, I'm Chris Sheridan. Thanks for listening. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company. Companies mentioned in Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.